Our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for giving us the Bible, that we can know you and know you truly as you are. We thank you for given Jesus to be our Lord and Saviour. And we um, thank you for your Holy Spirit and pray that he would be at work among us this morning, that we would hear your uh, voice powerfully, that you would be working in our hearts to know your truth and to love your truth, and that we, uh, as a result of hearing your word this morning, uh, would more and more have one mind and one heart and one purpose um, as the people of God and as the body of Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's probably Bibles around. Please grab one. Uh, if you didn't have one when you Bible, you'll find it heaps helpful to have in front of you. Turn page 1139 and you'll find Philippians, which is the passage I'm preaching on this morning. And if you have that in front of you, it'll help you follow along. There's also an outline, which hopefully is helpful, which got on the way in, I maybe. Let me tell you a couple of stories, um, uh, made-up stories. Uh, uh, Johnny is a, um, a pretty average... Ingleburnian, uh, average Australian. Uh, he's a, has a wife, got two kids, got a decent job, enjoys his footy. For some reason he's a Rabbitohs fan. I don't know why in a made-up story I'd make that up, but, you know, it's a strange story. Johnny cares about the standard things Australian people care about. Um, he cares about having a good place to live, cares about enjoying his job as best he can. He wants his kids to have a good education and he wants them to be able to grow up and choose to do whatever they want to do and He's always trying to work out how to do best in his career and have a work-life balance and have quality holidays and leisure times, concerned about his health and the health of his family. And he's always trying to work out how to live with less stress whilst worrying about all of those things I just mentioned, which is you know, sometimes a contradiction. That's one guy. Here's another one. Um, Janelle is older than Johnny. She's retired. She's got adult children who have finally left home. Thank God they didn't leave nearly as early as she might have hoped, but, you know, they left home eventually. Now she's in an empty nester. She cares about a lot of the same things that Johnny cares about, though. She cares about where she's going to live and work-life balance or retirement, whatever balance. She wants to have a decent retirement and enjoy it and have a nice house as an empty nester and enjoy quality of life and holidays. And she's concerned about her health and where that's going as she gets older and managing that well. And she's always wondering why she's more busy now she's retired than she was, she felt, when she was working. But, you know, that's, that's a thing that I'm told exists. Johnny and Janelle are really quite average people and they spend a lot of energy, most of their energy, thinking and investing in the types of things we talked about, their, their health, where they live, their, their money and how they're going to live, that, that kind of stuff. And they're really concerned with that. And then something wonderful happens. Um, Johnny and Janelle both become Christians. Uh, they hear about the Lord Jesus, they hear that he died on the cross for their sins, they hear that he was resurrected to new life, and that now he offers forgiveness of sins, a new life to all who have faith in him, and they believe it, and they trust in him, and they're genuinely converted. There's a problem, though. Um, Johnny and Janelle just care, still just care about the same stuff they cared about before they became Christians. Um, they care about where they're going to live and having good work-life balance and retirement and health and all this kind of thing. And this is their agenda and these are the problems they have in their lives that they want solutions to. What's changed is now they're Christians, so they know what the answer is to all their problems, don't they? What's the answer to all their problems now they're a Christian? Jesus! Here's my problem, Jesus solved it. And so now what they do as Christians is they pray to God for all the stuff they've decided that they need and all the stuff that they've decided is really, really important in life. The problem is 
Johnny and Janelle think the life under Jesus is still about their agendas. They're, they're still living off the script that Australian society has told them, here's the stuff to live for that's really important. They haven't yet learned that becoming a Christian involves getting an entirely new identity and new set of concerns for life. I, I, I like saying it like this. The way they're thinking at the moment, the way Johnny and Janelle are thinking is, Jesus is the solution for all their problems. What they need to learn is that Jesus is the problem for all their solutions. What they think, again, is Jesus is the solution to all their problems, but what they need to learn is Jesus is actually the problem for all their solutions. See, what do I mean by that? I mean, when you become a Christian, you learn that Jesus is this Lord and I'm not. And that means he sets the agenda and I don't. And he knows what's going on in the world and he knows what's important and he knows what matters in life and what's wrong with the world and what life's real priorities are. And so I come along with my agenda and I say, Jesus, these are the things that are really important in life. Here are the problems that I need you to solve. And Jesus is the problem for that because he goes, no, (laughs) no. I'm going to make a big problem for your solutions and I'm going to tell you what the real problems are, what the real things that you really need to think about and care about. Your agenda is going to be confronted and swept aside and you'll find yourself sharing Jesus' identity instead, sharing Jesus' agenda instead. It's... It's what we call union with Christ in the Bible. Um, it's maybe a, a, an unusual way to define what a Christian is. Here's, here's an unusual definition of a Christian, but a really important one. A Christian is a person who shares in the identity and purpose of Jesus. Who shares in the identity and purpose of Jesus. And we do it together as one united people. We're, we're, we're one people in Christ. Have a, have a look at your Bible there and I'll show you. It, there's lots of mentioning. It's not the focus... Um, like the verse says, and you knew Christ is this. It, 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 it keep making passing comments to it. It's the logic of the whole passage. Come to chapter 1, verse 27. And just notice the passing mentions here. He says, uh, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I know you will stand firm in one spirit. That could be um, just a, a unity of spirit among us, or it could be a mention of the Holy Spirit standing in both are true. Um, it's ambiguous, though. It could mean either one or both. Um, so there's unity there, one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. It's like Christians are pictured under Jesus as this big mega man who's doing one thing together, united. That's, that's, that's kind of the visual picture you're supposed to have in your mind. See, let me explain this idea of union with Christ. What, what happens is Jesus died on the cross for our sins he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and, you know, good for him. That's, that sounds like a pretty good thing to happen to him, right? What's that got to do with me? Well, what happens is when Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave his spirit to all who trust in him. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. It's the spirit of Jesus. The life of Jesus is the Holy Spirit. When Jesus shares his Holy Spirit with us, we're connected to him. The same spirit that lives in Jesus lives in you now if you trust in Jesus. You're kind of part of Jesus now in a a kind of peculiar way. The spirit of Jesus is in us, with us now, and, and we're with each other. We're united with each other and united with Jesus. It's like we're in Christ. We've got a new postal address and we live in, in Jesus. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 1, and you see he mentions this all the time and our eyes just skip over it because it, it's so standard language. But look, he starts the letter, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the... Is that a revelation? That was the important bit. 
You say Christ Jesus and it explodes. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Where do they live? They're in Christ. They're joined to Christ. They're united to Christ. And it says that all the time. Like it's a very, very common way of describing Christians in the Bible. Or the body image. You know, you've heard Jesus is the head and his people are the body. We're the members of his body. It's like Jesus is the brain and tells the body what to do and we obey him and we work as one unified body. I think the mental pictures we have, if I've... Where's the, where's the clicky doodah? Which is, of course, its technical name. Um, the mental picture we have um, isn't always very helpful. We, 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 if this works... All right. Well, I'm up to the point where I want it. So often, often I think what we do is we think about ourselves just as disconnected individuals who are trying to live the Christian life as best we can on our own. Um, and to, uh, in a sense, that's true. We, we have our own workplaces and our own families and we need to stand up for Jesus and live faithfully for Jesus where he has placed us in life. Um, but we also face life as people united to Christ. Now, so we... we, we um, so the mental picture you should have in your head. So Jesus is in heaven and there's all Christians living in their separate little lives and, 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 and trying to obey Jesus as best they can. But that's not the picture we should have. We're united in Christ. So it should look more like this. So it's all the people make up the body of Christ and we are Jesus now in a way. Like we're part of Jesus. That's what it's talking about. By his spirit, you're united to Jesus and to each other. And Jesus is the head and tells the members of the body what to do and if that's how it works, a bag's not being one of those people at the bottom. And it's really like, you know, every metaphor is awful if you bend it in certain ways. You know, the people at the top are closer to Jesus and heaven and the people at the bottom. No, that's not what it means. People are united in Christ and have unity and equality in Christ. Um, now, we're going to look at the passage. We're going to see four implications of um, being Christians who are united to the Lord Jesus. The four implications are in your handout. Um, we need to contend for the gospel together. We need to suffer together. We need to think together, that is, share the mind of Christ together. And we need to be humble together because that's the only way that we're able to live as one church, one people, one body of Christ. If you'll indulge me, I think this helps make the point. Um, Does anybody know what Voltron is? Voltron is um, awesome, or was, was awesome when I was six years old, you know. Um, I was introducing this to my um, children yesterday and they thought it was amazing. Um, just going, yeah, YouTube's great. Um, Voltron is a big manga robot that is kind of is Japanese but looks half British and American. I, it's got, anyway, uh, he's a big robot and he's Voltron, defender of the universe. And what Voltron does is he basically kills giant alien monsters to save planets and save people. He's a defender of the universe. But um, Voltron, um, what he does every single episode, Voltron's actually made up of five lions. There's these big robot lions, and you can see there's a pilot on each one. Um, What happens every single episode is the big alien monster comes up, and all the lions go and attack the alien monster as separate lions, and they lose. They haven't got a chance. They get knocked all over the place, and they go, oh, I know, let's form Voltron. And they all join together and make the big giant robot, um, and they form that blazing sword thing in the last two seconds of the show and chop the monster in half and that's what always happens. And even as a six-year-old and they're going, why didn't they just make Voltron at the beginning of the episode and make the sword at the beginning of the episode and chop the monster in half because that's how it always ends. But you kind of get the point. Um, We're united to Christ. Um, You will not do well in the Christian life on your own. 
You are not designed to go on your own. That's not what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means to be in Christ, to be united to him and to be united to each other and to do life together and to face the world together and to do all these things that we're going to look at together as one, uh, as it says in verse 27, contending is one man, the big mega man here made up of the people of God. So the first one, let's contend for the gospel together. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 27. Let's read that and hear what he says. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. What's that mean? Well, if you've got new life in Jesus, if you've got the Spirit teaching you godliness and holiness of life, live like that's true. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I'll know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. What's Jesus' agenda that we've been united to? Well, it's that his church should be built up in maturity and godliness in Christ and that the message of Jesus should go out to the world that more people can hear the message, believe and be united to Jesus too and have life in his name because that's what it means. The good news is us getting on with Jesus' agenda isn't just up to us. Um, he's actually given us, God's given us resources to do that. The biggest ones, and, and they, they, in practice, they come out as two kinds of conversations that we need to be having constantly. Um, the first way God's empowered us, the main way actually, is that he's given us his spirit. If you're struggling with sin, pray to God that by his spirit he will help you to overcome that and obey him instead because that's God's will for you and he wants that, so ask him to do it and keep asking to do it. Pray daily for him to do it. If you're not that doesn't resonate with you and you're not really sure what's, what, if you're doing anything that's you know, contrary to what God's on about in your life at the moment, why don't you pray that he'd show you? Because he wants you to make you more like Jesus than you are now. I guarantee you that's his will for your life. He, God's will for you is that you be holy. You be more like Jesus. So we need to be talking to God about that. By his spirit, he'd renew us and grow us in Christ. But the other conversation we need to be having is with one another. This standing as one man contending for the gospel idea isn't just something you literally do alongside each other. It is that. But it's also being each other's allies in life as we try to honour Jesus in all the parts of life, the different areas of life that we live in, as we go out in our week and, and, and live in different families and workplaces and um, clubs and whatever else. Are you talking to other Christians about the struggles and the challenges you face as a Christian in those areas of your life? Because you need allies in the Christian life. You need to face it together. We need to, in the Christian life, contend for the gospel together. The second one is we need to suffer together. Being united to Jesus means that to attack Jesus' church is to attack him personally. What happens with my big mega union with Christ man up here? What happens if somebody goes and punches him in the gut? Who have they punched? Jesus. And that's how the Bible talks about it. The Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, Philippians, knew this very personally. Before he was a Christian, he basically his hobby was persecuting Christians, uh, kind of turning it into a full-time job and chasing Christians around, trying to get them locked up, trying to, trying to kill them, that kind of thing. Um, very awful. To one day, Jesus confronted him and he said, at this point his name's Saul. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? Because you're attacking my body. And Saul was converted. He changed his name to Paul. Um, but 
Being united with Christ means to attack it. Jesus' church is to attack him personally. And that's how Jesus sees it. I think that's actually, that should be encouraging to us. Jesus takes personally how other people treat you. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Like, that, I, I think that's amazing. But it's an aspect of being united to Christ that's kind of unpleasant because Jesus is in heaven and we're on earth and people will often express their rejection of Jesus in the here and now by rejecting you and by directing their rejection of Jesus towards you in dislike and possibly persecution and mistreatment. How do you respond to people rejecting Jesus? Well, this passage says, first of all, don't be afraid of them. Have a look at uh, what, what it says in verse 28. So it says, Contending is one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Why? Well, this is a sign to them that they'll be destroyed and that you'll be saved, and that by God. It's been... Uh, I want to say it's been shocking and completely unsurprising the amount of vitriol that's been thrown around at Christians since the same-sex marriage vote went through. Um, it's been quite extraordinary. Lyle Shelton's in charge of the Australian Christian lobby and led the campaign and so on. So he's the most public face of Christians in Australia to you know, throw abuse at. And he's heard it. Uh, it's, I was going, that's my phone tone. Anyway, he's, he's heard it. Um, Lyle Shelton's abuse thrown at Lyle Shelton because you know, it's yes and not no, the, the, the vote in Australia, has been worldwide news. It's been that, that widespread and loud. Um, and it's disgusting and disturbing and it's completely ordinary for people who want to stand up in public and say, I follow Jesus and this is how Jesus says to live. It's kind of completely normal. It's completely horrible and unsurprising. But also, you know, don't forget, it's all about love and tolerance. It's, it's what, that's what same-sex marriage is all about. We need to think as Christians, how are we going to respond to the irrational hatred of anyone who holds the Bible's view of marriage? The first thing is don't be afraid and stand as one man contending for the gospel. But also see what it said there in verse 28. Don't, uh, it's a sign that they'll be destroyed and you'll be saved. It should remind us of some things and some things that I think help us respond well. Because if people are abusing you because you belong to Jesus you need to remember that you have salvation in Jesus' name, that your future is eternity in God's kingdom and that they are destined for destruction and their abuse of you is just evidence that they're opposing Jesus and they are in a miserable, miserable place in life. And you should pity them because it's miserable and pathetic. It's a really sad place to be without Jesus and opposed to Jesus in life because their future is destruction and it should leave us to compassion for them and rather than responding in kind to insults, pray for them and try to share Jesus with them because they desperately need him. Have a look at verse 29. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. It sounds strange, but it's the logic of being united to Christ. Jesus' story in brief was that he was baptised, that was the start of his mission, and he walked the path to glory in his kingdom. What was in between? Obedience to his father and suffering for it. Christians like him begin the Christian life at baptism to glory. What's in between? Normally what's in between is, well, what's always in between is obeying God and suffering for it when that's what it takes to keep obeying God in the place you're in in life. That's the normal 
story of the Christian life. Let me ask you this question. I'm not saying this is about to happen, but we need to think it through. What would you do if it became illegal for churches in Australia to teach Christian sexual morality? How would you respond? You're going to get fined every time you come to church. You risk imprisonment. How are you going to respond? Are you going to say to Joe and Dave, can we just tone that down a bit? Can we compromise just on that one point just so we can keep meeting and maybe we can reach more people because it's more open and we're not you know, putting up this hard wall between us and the world? Are you going to go looking for a church that isn't taking this strong stance on the truth of what God says and not the world says? And Because you'll find one. You, you'll definitely find, easy to find churches that aren't are going to compromise wherever the world pushes back. Or would you be willing to stand shoulder to shoulder as one man for the truth of the gospel and accept the consequences come what may? Jesus is the problem for our solutions. That's not what life's about. Life's about having a good life and, 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 and health and, and, and schools and, and, and retirement and money. And No, no. Jesus is the problem for our solutions about what life's about. It's been appointed to us not just to believe in him but to suffer for him because we're united to him and in a lot of contexts, that'll mean suffering for him if we're going to be faithful. We need to be, suffer together. We need to do it together. We need to think together. It's tempting to read the beginning of chapter 2 like this. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to end after that in a way that I think it's easy to sort of summarise it in practice. What it says is, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my oh sorry, tenderness and compassion, then be nice. I think it's easy to read it that way, right? <laughs> if all this great stuff, if you're united, be nice. Oh, I can pull that off, you know? But, but that's not what he says. What, what's he say? Well, in summary, what he says is if you're united to Jesus by the Spirit, then live like you are Jesus. That's, that's in sum what he says. Look what it says again. Uh, we'll go do chapter verse 2 this time as well. Um, if you have any encouragement being united to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with his spirit, so we've got the spirit of Jesus, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, with the mind of Jesus, having the same love as Jesus, being in one spirit and purpose as Jesus. Christians united to Christ need to have the same mind of Christ, the same heart as Jesus, and the same purpose as Jesus. Jesus sweeps our agenda aside and says, join in my agenda. Share my problems. That's just what it looks like to be authentically who we are in Christ, to have one mind, one heart, one purpose together as one big mega united with Christ man (laughs) contending for the gospel. Now that's a really big problem, a big challenge. Um, why? Because we are very, very selfish, um, all of us. I am, you are, often in ways we don't even realise. It's just the, we delude ourselves about it all the time. Um, and it's a big roadblock to churches loving and serving each other and reaching our neighbours with the gospel, is that we, we don't often have one mind, one heart, one purpose in practice. We're just selfish. Um, and we turn our preferences into things that we kind of spiritualise them as absolute things we must defend at all costs. Church needs to be like this because I prefer it that way and so you need to do it my way, that kind of attitude. And so what happens is everybody breaks up and does church their own way and joins with people who are exactly the same as them. And only people who are exactly the same as me will feel welcome here because we only do it my way. The way we often fall into doing church is very, very selfish and immature. 
What's the solution to that? Well, he goes on, chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you hear what he's just said then, it's so absolute, it knocks you off your feet. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Yeah, like guilty as charged, right? Like that, who's honestly going to say they do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit? But that's, that's the standard. That's what we need to strive for in Christ because we're united in Christ and that's what it takes to live that way, to have one heart, mind and purpose together. Do nothing out of vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Look not only to your own interest, but that of others. It's another way of saying um, just um, love your neighbour as yourself, isn't it? And in a weird way, if you're united to Christ and you're one body of Christ, then loving your Christian neighbour is really just loving yourself because you're united as one body in a, in a peculiar sort of way. Okay, Paul, that, that sounds really good. Do nothing out of vain conceit, humility, good, good. It's, you know, it's all good high-in-the-sky principles. Can you give us like a concrete example to follow? Okay, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Oh, what did he do? who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What's the standard? What's humility look like? What does putting others before yourself look like? It means giving up heaven to die for them. That's the standard. Your attitude, the mind that we share, should be the same as Jesus being willing to put aside anything for the sake of my neighbour and their welfare and their good. Jesus literally traded heaven for death for the sake of other people. So we need to think about the way that we often turn personal preferences and tastes into not negotiable principles. When people go to choose churches... There's lots of reasons people choose churches and lots of people expect from churches. Here's three things that I think are very, very high on people's lists and they're completely unspiritual. I like the music. I like the style of service, whether traditional, contemporary, whatever. And I feel like I belong to this demographic of people, whether age or families or what, like music, style, demographic. Those three things. And they're completely unspiritual. They've got nothing to do... Like, they're not unimportant considerations. They're they're, they're worth something. But if you're preoccupied with those things, you will not act in a way that's united in Christ. In fact, that'll get in the way of being united in Christ because what will happen is, instead of having one mind with people who are different than you, you'll say, here's my standard, here's my agenda, here's what I want church to be, and if you can't do that, we'll start our own church over here. What we should all be able to do, even if it's not the case in our church, is say, my church is not suited to my personal tastes. But that's great, because <laughs> it's suited to other people. Do, do you see the point? It's not all about me. <laughs> it's not all about me. And you can't just have a church made up of people who are exactly like me. That's not what the body of Christ is like. Jesus is gathering a people from every tribe and nation and tongue and every culture People who are very unlike me, I'm united to in Christ and I need to express that and I need to be united to them in practice. And putting up my white Australian Englishness as the only way I'm going to do church and the only styles of music I want to do it and I'll only do church this way is really unspiritual and contrary to the gospel. 
It's a distinctly Christian problem we have because Christianity is multicultural, multilingual and multi-ethnic. Um, we translate the Bible into every language so people can understand it in their own language and to become a Christian you don't have to become Jewish first. And praise God to that, for that because, you know, Jewish men get circumcised. So people of every nation and every culture can express Christianity in their culture to reach the people around them. It's very different to Islam, for example. You see it and you realise how different it is. I went to uh, Minto Mosque a couple of weeks ago because a friend invited me um, and I found out it was Muhammad's birthday. And so they, they, sang, um, they sang songs in Arabic for an hour and a half before anything else happened. I kid you not. Um, and what was striking about it is that because it was Muhammad's birthday, they had groups come who are of different um, uh, national backgrounds. I, I shoot from different mosques as far as I could tell. And so they sort of said this... This nationality, you'll sing this item and this item and this item, and they took turns. And all of them sang songs in Arabic. Why? Because Muhammad's an Arabic-speaking person and the Quran's in Arabic and you can't translate it because it's monocultural. Like, to become a Muslim is basically to become a 6th century Arab in a way, to a certain extent. Christianity isn't like that. Christianity translates itself in every culture and it has this extraordinary freedom we're free to go style. We can do whatever we like. <laughs> we can use every style. It's all good. God made it. We can use every style of music there is. We can use every style of church there is. We can do what we like. And we have this enormous freedom to do what we like for the sake of other people. And what do we do? We bicker and say, I only want it my way. Very often. <laughs> Let me ask you some concrete questions. Should we use the Book of Common Prayer in church? It's an church. I've been using the Book of Common Prayer in church since 1559. That's a terrible reason to use the Book of Common Prayer. They've used it for a long time. It's also a terrible reason to not use the Book of Common Prayer, you realise. New, newer isn't necessarily better. And whether we use the Book of Common Prayer or not use the Book of Common Prayer, that's not the issue. The issue is what is good for this church and building these people up in Christ and what is good for reaching out to our community with the gospel? What's going to appeal to them? What's going to speak in their language, the gospel? And we're asking those questions about other people and about how we can serve each other with the freedom we have in Christ. It gets very, very different things than everybody having their own church with the way we do it and we only do our style, thank you very much. I'm not saying we need to change anything. I'm saying we need to be asking that question constantly. How can we do things differently to serve people that aren't me? It's the same with church music. How should church music be? I've been involved in church music in heaps of churches. Always problems with church music. How should you do church music? You should do whatever best serves your church community and the spread of the gospel in your area. If there's a variety of people, that means you should do music in a variety of ways, assuming you've got the talent to do it. Um, you know, you know I, I, we're not going to do hip-hop next week because none of you seem to like it and because I can't pull it off. Um, I'm sorry. What style should we do carols as we sing carols in our community? Well, we're in Ingleburn. It's a western suburbs, if you haven't, understood, you haven't recognised. I don't, I don't think singing carols in five-part harmonies traditionally for an hour and a bit is going to appeal to many people in Ingleburn, but it will appeal to some people. And so what we're going to do is do it a variety of styles, and I guarantee that you'll find some things that you'll hate, and that's all right. I hope you can say when you find some things you hate, that's good because somebody who's not like me will probably like it. And if everybody hates it, maybe we should do it different next time. But, 
But that's the principle, isn't it? How can we serve the people who are around us who aren't me? Because otherwise you just end up with a room full of people that are exactly the same as you and that isn't what being united to Jesus is on about. But I tell you what we do have in common regardless of style of music and style of carols and everything. We can be united in rejoicing in the great truths of the gospel that God sent his son for our sins. Isn't it extraordinary that Jesus, God the Son, came to earth, gave up heaven to die on a cross for you and for me so we could share in his inheritance forever? Isn't that extraordinary? I can rejoice about those truths in any style of music because that's wonderful and what a privilege it is to express unity with other Christians of all different backgrounds and their own weird ways of doing things that are unlike me. That's just really great. It's really exciting to express our unity in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are united to Christ. That means we need to stand together for the gospel with one mind, one heart and one purpose. And it's going to be an ongoing task, isn't it? How about we pray that God will offer his uh, help in the ways that he's promised to um, now. Loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we're united to the Lord Jesus by faith. Thank you for the gift of your spirit, that Jesus isn't impossibly distant in heaven, but has come near by his spirit, by your spirit, to be in and with us all. Thank you that we're united to him. Thank you that his future is our future, that his death was the death of our old ass, that his resurrection is our resurrection that we wait for. Thank you that we have forgiveness and life in his name. Thank you that by your spirit you help us now to honour Jesus. Please, by your spirit, give us greater maturity in Christ. Give us eyes that are open to the needs and preferences of our neighbours and hearts that are willing to do whatever it takes for the good of other people and to welcome other people. Please reveal to us where there are petty things getting in the way of our unity with other Christians and help us to repent of those things and see them at the level of importance that they have. We also want to pray for our carols this afternoon that it would happen, it would be great, and the people that we've brought along um, would come, that, that invited along would come, and that they would hear clearly the gospel of Jesus and that you'd be a work in them so that they would want to turn to Jesus in faith as well. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.